You hear those uh, horns? Yes. The purge is real. I've said it multiple times recently since I changed the open of this show. Morton's Law Podcast. Thank you for checking out another episode. And it's... I don't even know what words to use at this moment in terms of the mass shootings. Just before coming on here as I record on this Sunday, May 15th, 2022... Another shooting, this time in Orange County, Laguna Beach, excuse me, Laguna Woods, at a church. And this is a day after the incident in Buffalo, where an 18-year-old male with racist intentions drove hours in Buffalo to wipe out 10 people at a supermarket. More than that, injured, by the way. Ten deceased. When does it end? And that's Friday night, by the way. There's there's very little details on Friday night in Milwaukee outside of where the Bucks play, where 20-plus people were injured due to gunshots that appear to be have fired from multiple groups. So it doesn't look like there was one shooter in the instance like in... Laguna Woods and Buffalo. So I don't know. That could have been just perhaps gang violence. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard anything more on the Milwaukee incident. But when is enough? When when does it end? It doesn't end. I mean, the way the government is, the way they make the laws, and how easy it is to get a gun, it's just not going to change. I don't know how it changes. I mean, people need to protest the government. And that's not going to happen in many states, as we know. The states that are going to say, and, and the people who feel that they have the right to own a gun and the right to kill anyone who enters their property, and, and that's the whole process and thought behind that. But it's... It's scary out there now. It's scary, and it, it really has become the purge. The only difference is it's not 24 hours to, to kill people. It's every day. It's here. Now, granted, people will go away for a long time, possibly life, as this individual will, this piece of crap. You hope, at least. I mean, who knows what the... Of course, people are going to claim mental illness, which you've heard me talk about here on this show multiple times and how it's a crutch and a lot of times if you're planning to do what he did which is the case here and is the case in a lot of incidents especially with uh frank james the the man in brooklyn who did the shooting and the bombing the gas uh bombing rather in the subway system don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a level of mental illness, there are levels, I should say, I mean, but to plan something, I think you have your faculties, I mean, there's, there's, there's spontaneous mental illness, but I, I don't know, I, I, I mean, look, that's a debate, we could debate that, I just feel like these people have it together, if that, if that's being said right, have it together, but know what they're doing, they're, they're cognizant of their actions, And the hatred 
that this individual had in his heart to do what he did. I said it in a group text to a bunch of friends that people like that should be put down like an animal. Should be, I mean, a wounded animal. That's what that person is mentally. They're wounded. Put them down. Because there's no hope for a person like that. There's no turning back. And that goes back to, hey, listen, I can go crazy here and, and go nuts about the, the right-wing lunatics. And it's easy to do because they're the ones with the guns. They're the ones doing the majority of the shooting. But then we can also focus on the Dems who create these laws that allow people to just get right out of jail. And the bail reform and all the other crap that we talk about. And how it's hard to keep people behind bars. So it's both sides. The government is a mess all around, which is why I don't have any affiliation at this moment. Because both sides are really bad. And I've said this also numerous times. Listen, you listen to this show all the time. You know, I'm, 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 it's a broken record. The majority of politicians only care about themselves. They wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire. They don't care about you. And that's, the, that's what gets lost in a lot of this. I was watching the Young Turks earlier talking about Trump and they had video of some guy in Alabama who was talking about the vaccine and why he didn't get the vaccine. And he gave his his reasoning behind Trump and the election and and the fraudulent election, as he claimed, and all these other things. And a lot of it doesn't make any sense. But these are the people that believe in their freedom. They're the ones that challenge the government. And like I've said here, the, the government doesn't ask us of much. I mean, taxes, yeah, it's ridiculous. This inflation, these are hard times for a lot of people. But when you challenge your government, as these people openly do, I think some freedom should be taken away. And it has to start with the guns. And it's not just in these right-wing states either. It's right here in New York. And you talk about the ghost guns that are slowly coming off the street. Listen, slowly. There's, there's too many of them, let's be honest. And you're not going to get rid of all of them. I mean, the shootings that are happening here in New York City is, is, is beyond alarming. I mean, it's like, it's the 80s, it's the 70s all over again. Again, repeating myself. It's, you would think at some point, and look, our mayor's hands are full with the law. The law that the Dems created. You hear about stories that cops are arresting the same person the next day for the same crime. That sounds insane, right? But it's true. If you're getting arrested and you know you're going to be out, then why would you not commit the same crime over and over and over? You hear these reports of people with rap sheets of 30 Arrests 30. So everyone is just a victim waiting to happen. You don't know when it can be you. I take the subway every day. I never know. You just don't. I mean, there's panhandlers on the subways. You don't know who's going to be at that level of mental illness where one day they want money. And if they don't get it, they're going to turn violent. I mean, so far, you, uh, I've come across the pacifists. But you just don't know. And it's, it's, it's horrifying. 
and what people are going to encounter going forward into until the laws change. And how does that happen? I, I mean, just it's so hard. And again, it's about who do you vote for? Who do you vote for? You, it's the lesser of two evils. Pick your poison, right? It's it's tough. It really is. It's it's sickening. I mean, and the, the hatred that people have. I, I'll never get that. I mean, listen, I. I'm I'm a, I'm a white male. I grew up in a New York City housing project surrounded by African Americans, and I, I I don't get how people can have that hatred in their heart for another race. And and obviously, look, they, it it comes from the parents. There's no doubt about it. It comes from some kind of influence. You're not born with hatred in your heart. There's I mean, and then we can get into Fox News and whatever. I mean, look, Carlson and Hannity and all the other rhetoric that's spewed. And the white supremacists that control the airwaves at that network, and but I, I don't I don't understand how anyone can believe that they're better than another person just because of the color of their skin. That's mindless. It's just why? How do how do people get that thought? I don't get it. Just I mean, disgusting. And I mean, there's an irony, by the way, in terms of the Dems making the laws the way they have and how easy it is to get out of prison. And the Republicans, like these insane people, are are taking full advantage of it. Now, again, in this instance, people like this committing these mass homicides are not getting out of prison. So there's a little bit on both sides, like I said. This is not an easy topic to discuss. But the people who are going to go, oh, my God, I'm so shocked. Oh, this is no. What? Why? How are you now shocked by this? This is an almost I don't want to say an everyday occurrence, but now this has actually happened three straight days, although the Milwaukee incident appears to be something different. And we're going to get more of this. Too much freedom. The death penalty has to come back, by the way. I mean, nationwide, I don't even to be honest with you, I'll plead ignorance. I don't know if it's even in any state at this point. I don't know. But it's like. It's ugh, and the robberies here in New York City. Oh my goodness! I just got sent a video again today of, of an incident here on Staten Island that a lot of bodegas are being hit, uh, where where the, the the workers being attacked. In this incident, the uh, worker was strangled. I mean, until I, I, he was unconscious. I don't think he's dead, but um, and that's happening all over, especially in the Bronx. Listen, if it's not happening on Staten Island, it's happening in the Bronx. And again, they're going to get out. (laughs) They're going to get out and walk the streets. I mean, every day when I'm on the subway, I look over at somebody. You just don't know who if that person has a rap sheet and what they're capable of doing. You just never know. But and that's another thing. It's a joke when I see and hear about the police being on the subways and trying to stop this crime because a lot of the time the cops know what happens when they arrest these people they're right back out and i've seen listen the way cops are deployed in the subway system is a joke for the most part because i see cops often huddled around like there's not just two of them you would think 
partners would be together. Yeah, I get that. There's always a partner system. Sometimes you'll see four cops together. Why are those two not spread out elsewhere? Why do I have, I don't need four cops together in one location. I want two at one platform, two at the other platform. Spread them out. And a lot of times these cops are on their cell phones. They're not even alert. I mean, it's it's bad. They're not paying attention to what's going on. Because, hey, I mean, I'm not going to get into an attack the cops. I'm not going to do that right now. But I'm just going to say there's there's a lot that don't care. More so for the system. But then there's those cops that could care less anyway. So I didn't do a show last week. Brief hiatus. I uh, had a horrible weekend sleeping. And I just had zero energy to put forth the effort to do this show. Because like I say, there's a lot of research that goes into this. I don't just, like, although I do occasional show where it's off the top of the head. I think I've done two in a matter of three years. So, yes, I can't lie about that. But uh, there was the incident that occurred that I wanted to talk about last week that I'll briefly talk about now, which was Dave Chappelle being attacked by this time confirmed mentally ill individual who went on, rushed the stage and tried to get to Chappelle. Uh, security obviously intervened quickly, and this man was, I mean, he was beaten up badly, <laughs> if you saw his eye. He was a young gentleman, like 20s, uh, he was, a, I guess, an amateur rapper who had written a song about Chappelle, and it was unclear about his motives, whether he was, I mean, I don't know, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but apparently Chappelle didn't meet with this guy after the show, because he told security to hold him, he wanted to find out about him. And um, this guy, I guess, was from Brooklyn, and his mother had lost her home due to gentrification in Brooklyn, and he was just outraged about a lot of the things that happened, which coincidentally, I, I've encountered a lot of that myself, just being in Brooklyn, like I've, I've worked as a softball umpire, and I know in certain neighborhoods, white people have moved into where, I mean, look, maybe they're... There's too many white people where they're not wanted. And, and I mean, there was some outrage. I encountered, encountered somebody who was mentally ill as an umpire. And I was uh, working with two teams. And a gentleman from across the street came over. And he started to, to lash out at people who were there and stating, we don't want you here and, and get out of here. And, and, and it was, it was, it was a, a difficult situation to deal with. And the cops were called and he was handcuffed and taken away. But... I mean, you know, the, and just in terms of the mental illness, and you don't know when people are capable of, of coming after you. It's, and, you know, but with the gentrification, look, that's another story. I, I can't talk about that. I mean, that's not for me to say, but it's, uh, you know, it's just scary out there in terms of what's going on, like with Chappelle. And then uh, Chris Rock, who happened to be there at the event, happened to make some jokes about, of course, Will Smith, which is easy to do now. And, um, you know, the scary part was Bell was set for this individual at only $30,000. So he was obviously out on the street very soon. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, what's going on? But, you know, obviously this individual... Did not like Chappelle talking about transgender individuals. And that's another topic. As a stand-up comedian, I, although I don't even I can call myself that one anymore because I haven't been on stage in so long. I need to get back on the stage. 
to once again call myself that. But I think people are far too sensitive to a lot of subjects. All right, well, um, that wraps up the In the News segment here on Morton's Love Podcast. Going to come back and talk about the NBA playoffs. Just had a Game 7 conclude in Boston. We have a Game 7 coming up tonight in Phoenix. And a lot more to talk about pro wrestling-wise will be in the third segment. AEW is live on Long Island, so a lot, to, a lot there. And uh, we'll be back. Morton's Love Podcast. Back after this. Welcome back to Morton's Law Podcast. Game 7 recently concluded in Boston. And the Celtics had an incredible second half. Just blowing out the Bucks, Winning the game by, I believe, 29 points. And uh, will advance to the conference finals against the Miami Heat. The story of this game. Grant Williams. Career high. 27 points. Get this, he took 18 three-pointers. 18, Grant Williams. Not Jason Tatum, not Jalen Brown, not Al Horford. Grant Williams made seven of the 18. The Celtics made 22 of 55 from beyond the arc. That's just mind-blowing. And that's what the Bucks do defensively. They make you shoot the three. That's why the Bucks knock the Bulls out so fast because the Bulls can't make threes because they pack it in. Like, go ahead, shoot the three. And there were a couple of games in this series where the Celtics couldn't find the three at all, and that's why this went to seven. And that's just what it comes down to. You live and die by the three against the Bucks anyway. And uh, the Bucks are going home. I mean, listen. It was, a, it was a great effort by them being down Chris Middleton. Obviously, you can say it would have been a hell of a different series with him present, not only defensively, but the scoring that he gives that they couldn't do in Game 7 because what the Celtics did was they almost did the same thing. They said, go ahead, beat us with the three. And they were they, their shots were more contested, though. The Celtics in this game played much better D than the Bucks did because Grayson Allen... Pat Connaughton, Drew Holiday, even Brooke Lopez, all of the threes were heavily contested. They they barely had any good looks. And they ended up shooting four for 33 from downtown. That sends you home packing. I mean, just they couldn't make shots. That's it. And, and it's a league where you, sometimes you have to make contested shots. That's what I think the difference in the, in the league today is versus 20, 30 years ago. Guys made contested shots all the time because they, first of all, didn't play the zone. So you have a man on you all the time. And I don't know. I, I feel like, and I'll talk about the, the, the Sixers and the Heat series in a moment. But when you see you're getting beat in the zone, and I, and I get it from the standpoint of, okay, we're going to make Grant Williams beat us. But if he continually makes that shot, I don't know why you can't come out of that zone. And it, every time he got an open look, I don't get it. I feel like, and again, I, this, is, this is again a broken record, but when you go to help a drive, there's way too much overhelping. You have to trust your defender to play one-on-one, especially if it's a Drew Holiday. I mean, I get, you know, you're going to help out Grayson Allen, who just got destroyed at moments in this game by, by Jalen Brown 
and 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 Tatum and any anytime there's a switch, they're gonna take advantage of him. But there's way too much helping overall. And you have to be somewhat honest now when you see this guy making X amount of threes, especially in the fourth quarter when, I mean, look, they, they pulled away somewhat in the third, but you've seen in this series, both teams come back from 14 point deficits in the fourth quarter. So even though the Celtics had a, a big lead going into the fourth, it wasn't over. But then quickly <laughs> it went to 20 and um, uh, Pritchard hit multiple threes. He was huge in the fourth quarter. He hit a lot of shots with, shot, with the shot clock winding down. And then the last five minutes, the game was just a laugher. And in the first half, the Bucks had a chance. I mean, the Bucks were up after trailing early. Actually, they just trailed 3-0. Then they went on a 10-0 run. And then they led for a majority of that second quarter until the last couple minutes where the Celtics went on a run. And in a crucial uh, uh, incident to end the half was when Giannis got picked by Marcus Smart, who then wisely went into the shooting motion because it was literally under two seconds left in the half when he picked his pocket. And he got fouled and he shot three free throws, which is interesting because if you remember at the end of game I want to say it was game three or game four where Smart got fouled and only shot two free throws instead of three. And it looked like at that moment he was in the act. This time, you can argue he wasn't. But, I mean, listen, the the announcers, um, Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, made a very great point that, I mean, listen, with under two seconds to go, of course you're going to be shooting the shot because you're cognizant of how much time is left. So they made the right call here. And look, referees are going to get bashed, and I get it, and coaches get bashed. I feel like so many people just do that to do it. It's like, oh, well, what, what happened in the game? Oh, the refs suck. It's like, come on. I, I, I get into it with people in group text messages about the refs, and it's like they, they had some questionable call where Tatum got called for an offensive foul. And by the way, Tatum was out of this game in the, in the third quarter where the Bucks could have made a run with him on the bench for I believe the last four minutes of the third quarter and the Celtics only increased their lead, which is a testament to their bench and other people that came in. I know Robert Williams was available, but really, I don't know if he played at all. I don't remember him being on the court to do anything, but they didn't need him with Grant Williams. And uh, so, but yeah, I forgot my point. I was going to say about the, the offensive foul call. Look, the block charge is the hardest call. Because in this moment, Tatum drove and, and Allen was in front of him and they called a block, excuse me, a charge and the Celtics challenged and the call wasn't overturned. And I, and I told people why I said he didn't slide in to get the block or the charge. Rather, he didn't. He wasn't leaning. Was he set? No, but you don't have to be completely set when a guy is in front of you because it's a called the player control charge. You can't just run somebody over who's in front of you. If Allen was sliding to the left or the right to try to draw the charge, then that's clearly moving and would have been a block. So regardless, the, the Celtics overcame not having Tatum on the floor for a good four plus minutes. I know he started the fourth and uh, hey, kudos to the Celtics moving on where they're going to get the Miami Heat who really put it on the Sixers in game six. And I was surprised. 
I, I thought the way the Heat hadn't responded on the road in games three and four, where then they had to go back home in game five and and control home court advantage, which they did do. And I just thought at that moment it was going to be a home court series where the Sixers would win game six. Now, Embiid played. I know he has the fracture. And he played well in game five despite the loss. He was seven for 12 from the floor, played 33 minutes. So he was on the court. Listen, I say if you're on the court, you're more than capable of playing. I can't say, oh, his eye. You know, he made seven of 12 in game five. Fast forward to game six. He was seven of 24 from the floor on the court. I believe 40 minutes, 40 minutes. Now, everyone is going to point to James Harden and say he took two shots in the second half of the game. He's got to be better than that and take more shots. And even Embiid was critical of Harden in the postgame press conference, stating this is not the Houston James Harden. Well, I mean, for one game he was, right? The one game where he rescued the Sixers in game four and turned back the clock for that one quarter where the Heat couldn't guard him. And um, but yeah, look, Harden has aged really fast before our eyes and he couldn't get shots off. Listen, P.J. Tucker, great ball denial. Harden couldn't get away from him. And that just shows how slow he's gotten with time at the age of what, 33? How old is he? So they locked him up. But to me. With Embiid being up there for the MVP, obviously Jokic got it again. But as an MVP candidate, if you're on the court, goggles or not, and you take 24 shots, you have to make more than seven. That's it. And what did they end up losing by nine? Now, I don't expect everyone to shoot 50% in the postseason because obviously there's much better defense being played and, and fewer calls are made, you would think, for the most part. But to me, that's more on Embiid than it is on Harden. So the Sixers go home. And again, like I said to people that week when Embiid missed game four, it's it's like, I mean, excuse me, Embiid played game four. When he missed game three, rather, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when Embiid will get hurt. And that's a problem that you have now as a Sixer fan going forward with this man now locked up for many years with a contract. And it's reminiscent of the Bulls with Derrick Rose. And I'm a fan of the Bulls, so I had to live through that. And you knew the Bulls had a team that were more than capable of making the Eastern Conference Finals, if not the finals, with a healthy Derrick Rose. And with the exception of that one Eastern Conference Finals where they lost to the Heat in five with a healthy Rose. The Bulls had many more opportunities in which Rose was not on the court. And that was tough as a Bulls fan. And it's got to be equally as tough for Sixers fans to see this and to just go, well, mm, is he going to be on the court or not? You know, like, okay. Uh, that's painful. But, hey, Jimmy Butler, listen. I talk to people who actually say Jimmy Butler is not a winner. And that's insane to me because he's the definition of a winner. The guy that puts the team on his back and plays both sides of the floor and is unselfish. 
I don't I don't know what more of a winner you're looking for. I mean, in the fourth quarter of games, could he be more efficient? Perhaps. I mean, you you could you could point to a thousand guys that can be better in the fourth quarter. But the definition of a winner is just that. The guy that will sacrifice. The guy that will play defense, dive on the floor for a loose ball. I mean, so listen, this is going to be an incredible seven-game series. Obviously, the Heat, game one, Tuesday night in their building. And uh, it's going to be a war. It's going to be a war. It's going to be, if you thought the Bucks. Celtics series was ugly and reminiscent of the 90s or the late 90s specifically with those Heat and Knicks knock them down, drag them out like just brutal, like ugly games in the 80s. This series is going to be just that. Well, of course, they'll prove me wrong and every game will be in the hundreds, but just just because that's my life. (laughs) <laughs> but this series, there should be, if not one, there'll be two games in this series where the score doesn't crack 90. Because that's how these two teams are going to play. They're going to take away everything that is the strength of the opponent. And it's going to be a chess match. You got two great minds. You got two great minds in the front office. So just think about that with Spolstra. On the sidelines, you have Riley in the front in the in the front office, aiding Spolstra. That I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. It's crazy when you think about Riley still there. And I will pick the Heat in seven. I believe. I think now we talk about the Bucks in the Celtics series with the way home court wasn't as dominant as it's been in other series. Of course, with the Celtics winning Game Six in Milwaukee. And the uh, the Bucks winning game five, uh, game four in Boston. It's just like it's crazy the way this has went back and forth with the, the with the Bucks winning what two games on the road in this series, and of course would have had to win a third and did not. But I do believe that the Heat and the Celtics will win a road game in this series. I do believe that will happen. So moving along, we get game seven tonight in Phoenix, about to tip off in about 30 minutes or so. And this has been a complete home court series. No one is one on the road. And I think tonight that will remain the same. Because if you look at game five and Phoenix in the early second half had a had a I believe a two point lead it was close good first half and there was a timeout where they had Monty Williams mic'd up and he's talking to his team I wish I could remember verbatim what he said but he was just talking about defensive alignment and how he wanted people to help and where they should be and the Suns then went on I believe a 17-0 run and just blew the game wide open and I told people during the week I said wow That was incredible coaching, how his team responded to everything he said. And they went in and executed exactly the way he wanted them to. That's just, that's incredible. And then in game six, the Suns forgot how to play, which is just mind-blowing. Unless, and and I hate to say this. Unless they knew they had game seven in their back pocket and they were like, ah, we can kind of just, you know, sleepwalk through this game. If we're in it at the end, we'll compete. If not, we got game seven and we know, or at least we believe 
that the Dallas Mavericks are not capable of winning game seven in our building. So that's going to be fun tonight. Because listen, Luka's going to get his points. You know they've been giving it to him, especially in games one, two, and six. Or excuse me, five. They gave him his points. And they shut everybody else down. In Dallas, the Mavericks had help. They have not gotten any help on the road. So whether it's Brunson... Finney Smith, Dinwiddie, I don't know who's going to step up, Bullock. Can someone tonight help Luka overcome this defense that they're going to see tonight? Because if that doesn't happen, then the, the Suns will advance and face the Warriors, who, after taking a beating, oh, talk about a beating in Game 5, holy cow. I mean, Memphis facing elimination just destroyed the Warriors by what 50 I went to bet it was 110 60 and they just I mean again the Warriors you could say went okay well we know we have game six in our building we're gonna put it away then and they did they did they they ended it Memphis hung around I mean it took a a fourth quarter to put him away but Clay did so I mean Steph wasn't Steph listen this is not the same Warriors team they're not as dominant they're very beatable Draymond doesn't look like Draymond anymore. He's a shell of himself, in my opinion. And the role players, they have some deficiencies on defense. Like Gary Payton II isn't there. He's injured. I don't know his status for this next series. But the Warriors defensively are very vulnerable. So Booker's going to get his. I mean, if if Dallas, excuse me, if Phoenix advances, which I believe will be the case, we're gonna get we're gonna get Phoenix and Golden State, which is what I think a lot of people would rather see, unless you're a Mavericks fan or a fan of Luca. And Phoenix, of course, having the home court, I'll lean Phoenix Game Seven again. I'll say I'll say both Eastern and Western Conference Finals are gonna go seven, and they're gonna be classics. And you know I'm partial to my era of the '80s and '90s. But I don't, I don't completely dismiss this era. I think there's good basketball being played by the better teams. I think you still get the guys that can shoot the mid-range jumpers that don't rely heavily on the three. When I watch these games, am I still screaming at the TV occasionally that there's too many threes? Of course I am. Sometimes I'm just like, do something else. Take the ball off the dribble. Shoot it. Shoot it. Shoot it. Stop. And it's like, because as I said on the last episode, when you drive the lane, Nobody's attacking the rim. Attack the rim. Stop throwing the ball in the corner for threes. And that's what everyone's doing, with the exception of a few. Whenever I see a guy attack the rim, I'm I, I'm, sorry, I'm speechless. I'm like, somebody attack the rim? What? Like earlier in this game, Jalen Brown went right at Brooke Lopez, I believe. Or was it Giannis? He went at the chest of the defender and scored over him at the rim. I said, why don't guys do that more often? Guys should do that more often. If your shot gets blocked, go do it again. The next time you might shoot free throws. You might get an N1. It's like guys are afraid to attack the rim. I don't get it. And there's not even the the centers of yesteryear. Think about the shot blocking centers of the 80s and 90s. These guys aren't on the court right now. What's your fear? I don't get it. But yeah, I'm going back to what I said. There's good basketball still being played today. And uh, so moving along, 
what was I going to say? Let me see. Oh, I had a thought before I get on to uh, the next segment. We talk about wrestling after a brief break here. When you look at Ja Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies and how hard they competed without him playing the last, what, two or three games? I forget how many games he missed. They're in those games, okay? They beat the Warriors by 50 without him. Then they went into game six and they were competitive. Did they lose? Yes, they lost. If I'm a GM in this league, I don't know, the Knicks, whatever team is looking for a superstar, I'm calling Memphis and saying, what do you want? What can we give you to get John Morant? Because if I'm the Grizzlies GM, I'm entertaining that offer. I'm going, well, how can I make my team better knowing I already have Bean, I have Brooks, who is inconsistent. Brooks is inconsistent. I get that. Uh, Tyus Jones is there. You have Jaron Jackson Jr., who, by the way, I'm going to call out here for a second because he's the problem with the league. Okay. Jaron Jackson Jr. and Giannis also, by the way, I'm going to group these guys for a moment. Giannis shoots 28% from three. Jaron Jackson Jr., 32% from three. He took seven three-point shots in the elimination game when Memphis went home. I believe he made one. I think he made one. I don't want you shooting seven threes when you shoot 30%. I'm sorry. I don't care if they're open. If you're open, get a better shot. And that's, that's what happens in this league now. Guys, they're going to play off of you. But if you're going to be like, like Grant Williams today, made his shots, okay? Now, I don't know Grant Williams' percentage on the season. I don't know. I could probably find it and then tell you he shouldn't be shooting their shots, but he is. But that's, that's an indictment on the league that you're going to just keep shooting it because you're open. Well, you're going to you shoot 30% for a reason. But so if I'm Memphis... If I'm the Memphis GM, what are you going to give me? I'll, I'll trade Morant. Am I going to stockpile picks? Hey, you could do what Danny Ainge did. Look at what Danny Ainge did. He built this Celtics team. Now, you can argue there was some other moves in there made that he probably didn't have his hands on. But ultimately, all the draft picks that the Celtics have, this is this is basically the team that he built. So it worked. So if I'm already there with a few players that I think Memphis can win with, well, then I'm going to stockpile more picks and maybe I'll get even a better star. Because we don't know what Morant is. We don't know. People talk about Donovan Mitchell and now the Knicks are going to try to trade for him and with Utah. And, and he's another guy. We don't know what these guys are. There's flaws in their games. Morant can't shoot and Mitchell's inconsistent. I, I think Mitchell may have more upside because I'm not ready to definitively say Mitchell is not a winner because, as I've said on this show, I don't think Mitchell has been given the second player to help him win. Like, Gobert is eh, not a number two. Bogdanovich is not a two. And you know how I feel about Conley. I mean, he's been washed up for years now. Also unreliable, injured all the time. So Mitchell could go somewhere and get help elsewhere. And perhaps turn into a winner. So I'm I'm intrigued by that. And I brought that up to some people. And people went, hmm, that's interesting. Could Memphis entertain an idea to trade John Morant? And, and we'll see. I mean, 
I'm making that call and I'm and I'm taking that call. So uh, that wraps up the NBA playoffs. I'm gonna come back on the other side and talk pro wrestling AEW on Long Island this past Wednesday live. Morton's Law Podcast back after this. Tune in every Monday night at 10 p.m. for the Absolute Truth Show on Blog Talk Radio. Join the Hot Rod, Sean Black, and Lady T as they give you the truth on current events, politics, and everything in between. That's Monday nights at 10 p.m. on blogtalkradio.com slash the absolute truth 100, where they tell it like it is. Morton's Law Podcast back with this uh, final segment here talking pro wrestling. Before I do, though, I forgot to mention baseball. I know the Yankees and the Mets still in first place in their divisions. And the Yankees, I believe, won the series. They beat the White Sox today again. I know they lost Saturday night. But the Yankees, I think they're 23-9. and The Mets had a tough loss at City Field early this afternoon. They were trailing 8-5 in the ninth. They put runners on second and third. And Seattle opted to walk Francisco Lindor to face Pete Alonso. And Alonso struck out on a check swing. I, st- I still haven't seen a replay, by the way. That was very close in terms of did he go or not go. So the Mets lost. And I think they lost a series of the Mariners. And they haven't been losing a lot of series. So, I mean, we still don't know what that, that division is. Because people are way too quick to write off teams in May, because that's where we are, we're only in May, and people go, oh, the Braves, and the Phillies, and the Marlins, ah, like, we don't know what they are, if you think about it, in a division, the Phillies, and the, Mar- excuse me, the, the, uh, the Nationals, and the uh, Braves, were under 500, the two years that they won the World Series at the All-Star break, I believe, were hovering the 500 mark, before they went on that incredible second half run to win the World Series. So we just, we can't do that. People, ugh. It's so tough to talk to fans sometimes. You're like, Whoa, wait, what? You're saying what in May? What are you saying? Like, it's me, like the Yankees. I mean, look, this is a different Yankees team. I've heard other people say it. And I'm going to just, this was my thought too. So who cares who said it first? This Yankee team doesn't live off the home run as they did in prior years, even last year. They can score runs with the hit. But, yeah, so the Yankees and the, the Mets, I mean, I don't know. Could we get a, a, a Subway Series Part 2? We'll see. All right, so wrestling talk. Let's go. I know a lot of people are tuning in just for that. AEW Dynamite, live on Long Island this past Wednesday. The Owen Hart Foundation Tournament kicking off. Dr. Martha Hart, Martha Hart, easy for me to say, the late uh, great Owen Hart's widow in the building. Great atmosphere. This crowd was raucous. This was a very loud, albeit smaller crowd. Obviously, they drew better when they, they, they went to Arthur Ashe and at this UBS uh, building. There were only 
making capacity around 7,000, which is interesting to me. Like you would think not too far from there, they drew 20,000 and perhaps could do that again. As Tony Khan recently came out and said that their goal is to make the Arthur Ashe Stadium show an annual event. So it's just intriguing how they could do 20,000 in one location and only seven in the other. So I don't know. That just goes back to the whole drawing aspect of wrestling today. So the show kicks off with Adam Cole, baby, against Dax Hardwood. Now, this was a solid match. A lot of good back and forth stuff. A, a lot of just quality wrestling. Listen, these two guys are great in the ring. Nobody can deny that. However, we get an odd finish. An odd finish that just made me shake my head in question. I mean, so after Dax, there were a couple moments in the match where Dax attempted to put a sharpshooter on Cole. Cole got out of it. And then the finish comes where Cole actually ends up getting Dax into the sharpshooter. And to my dismay, Dax taps out. And I went, what? I was like, are you kidding me? I was in like absolute shock and not in a good way as oftentimes AEW will have me surprised by a finish. And I was just like, what? What are they doing? What are they doing? I mean, think about it. Cole had been winning uh, matches recently with the low blow. So he'd been healing in all of his matches to get victories after having his tough losses against Hangman Page. So he was building up that. And then... You're like, so wait, for one night he doesn't heal to win a match? Oh, because it's the Owen Hart Foundation now? We have to have some, what, decorum? Or not? you can't be a, a, a cheater because of this tournament? And I'm like, what? that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, unless Tony Khan's thought process is, well, I want to build him back up credibility-wise and get him a clean win over a quality opponent like a Dax Hardwood, especially if it, the plan is for him to win this tournament. I don't know, obviously, their plans. But the thing, in my thought is this. It's like, I mean, if you want your heel to actually be the heel that they were building him to be, wouldn't he get even more heat from this crowd if he cheated in this tournament? When you think about what they're trying to build up, the credibility of this being a wrestling tournament, quote unquote, right? And then the heel cheats to win. That's going to just be crazy. I mean, heat on Cole. If he were to do that, instead you have him, you know, obviously it would have been like, he would have desecrated the tournament. It would have been like, oh my God, Adam Cole, how dare you cheat in this great tournament? You besmirched the name of Owen Hart with his with his widow present in the building. Instead, we get a clean win. I was just like, and they tried to sell it. Oh, he worked over the ribs and, and Dax was injured. He took a fall to the floor. He took a pile driver, a brain buster. You name it, he did it. And Dax just like, in video game world, he had no energy left. <laughs> so he had to tap out. But... I just feel like if he cheated to win, the crowd would have been all over him. That would have been crazy heat. So I disagree with the finish, but whatever. Uh, so Punk comes out. This was, this was gold. Listen, a lot of this show was good. I had fun watching this show. I had pizza. I think I ate six slices. I had a whole pie. And then I wonder why I can't see my six pack. Yeah, I know. I had a beer, everything. I'm here. I was supposed to go to this show, but I opted out because I work early the next day. And I know with Rampage 
and the commute from Queens to Staten Island, I would have been home after one. And as in my advanced age, I need more than just six hours of sleep. So I passed on that. But I ate like a pig. I'm sitting here enjoying the show, flipping back and forth with the playoff game. So Cole, excuse me, Cole. So Punk comes out wearing an Islanders jersey. If you remember the last time he was on Long Island, it was around the time he was feuding with MJF and he got booed out of the building because he talked smack about the Islanders and and their lack of playoff appearances. I believe he took, he made reference to John Tavares and being now in Toronto. And this was great because he comes out wearing the Islanders jersey. And you think initially it's a peace offering. Hey, let's be friends again. Everything is cool, right? Then he turns around, and this was brilliant. He turns around, and he's wearing a Tavares jersey, and that was just hilarious. I was like, that is brilliant. And for those who don't know, he's obviously, as I said earlier, he's in Toronto. I believe in Toronto now. I don't know. People change teams all the time in hockey. I don't know. So, but yeah, I was like, you can't make up how great that was in, in terms of how he got that heat initially, right away, again. So he takes on little John Silver. All right, all right. You know what? I, I, that's mean. I, I don't know. He he could be big. He could be Long John Silver. He could be. I don't know. I've never seen him with his pants off, so I don't know. Although they do say midgets are hung like a baby's arm, so who knows? He could be Long John Silver, but in this case, he's Little John Silver. So, oh yeah, I forgot. Hangman was on commentary during this match. And the finish here was next level psychology. It was just so brilliant in terms of the way they do certain things. And AW gets a lot right for all the wrong that they do also. So Punk looks at Hangman at commentary, pauses, goes outside on the ropes, on the apron rather, and does the buckshot lariat and pins Silver one, two, three. And I went, holy shit, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, it was just like, that. that's just so well done. And, and whoever came up with that finish was brilliant. So Paige then comes to the ring doing his walk as he does. And he gets in Punk's face. Punk has a mic. And he told him, are you mad? <laughs> Why are you mad? I'm, I wish he would have said bro. I don't think he did. It would have been great. I, are you mad, bro? Why are you mad? So he's like, it's not personal. This is business. And then he says the following, at double or nothing, you will shake my hand, whether you're conscious or unconscious, and Paige flips him off and leaves. That was, that was a great piece of business right there. That was perfect. Speaking of punk, they did a really funny post show that I, I happened to catch on YouTube. Someone recorded it and put it on YouTube, hasn't been taken down, and it's still, I don't know if it's still there or not. And it was, uh, it was, it was regarding uh, Punk and Hook with MJF and Danhausen. And I, that was, I forget the exact title, but I saw those involved. And I click on. And MJF is in the ring post show. A lot of times when these shows are over, even after Rampage, someone will come out and talk to the crowd. Obviously, MJF being the hometown, which we're going to get into him in a moment. He comes out and he talks about everything that happened in the night, puts some people over. And then out of nowhere... Uh, he references CM Punk, saying he wants another shot at PG Punk eventually at some point. So Punk's music hits. The crowd dumps all over him. Punk is in the ring, and he's talking to MJF, 
saying, and, and MJF references having another match. But then he says, no, 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 not with me. It's going to be with this guy. And the music plays and it's Hook. And Hook comes down to the ring. And Punk was brilliant here. This just shows Punk and his brilliance because he goes full heel. He he gets he now Punk when 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 uh, Hook gets into the ring. By the way, this is where it's great. Punk rolls out. So Punk pull, plays the full heel, rolls out of the ring, wants nothing to do with Hook. Then he goes to walk up the ramp, and as he's walking up the ramp, Danhausen music plays. So Danhausen's on the uh, the ramp, and he starts to do his magic spell. That by the way doesn't work on Hook, but it worked on Punk. So Punk is walking backwards to the ring with the spell. This, I mean, this is why Punk is great, just how he can flip to be a full heel. And he goes back into the ring, and now his back is turned. He's in the ring, and Hook is right behind him. And Punk does that thing, which a lot of wrestlers have done in the past, but it's still funny, where he reaches behind him, and he feels Hook's face. And then he turns around and goes drops to his knees and puts his hand up for a shake. And I was like, that, that, that's a mark out moment for me because I love when heels do that stuff. And I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. And then um, Hook uh, brings Punk up with the handshake to his feet. So they're shaking hands and Punk is now smiling, thinking everything is cool. They're friends. And then Hook grabs him and gives him a T-bone Tazplex dad and um and then he chokes him out and here's the best part the best part is this you got to see this video if it's still online he chokes out punk and punk is out and the people recording this just let it run and they let it run and all the people are leaving and now there's almost nobody left in the crowd uh but a, a scattered fans here and there and you see security and you see everything punk is still out not moving at least five to seven minutes elapse where nothing, no movement from Punk. And the video ends with security and backstage people coming in and putting Punk on, I guess, a stretcher or a gurney, something. They put him on something and they wheel him out and he never moved. So that is called selling. That is the greatest job of selling right there to put Hook's choke over that he never moved. The fans never got to see him get up and walk out of the ring. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Kudos to, to Punk on that. But now, but now, Hook has to continue to get over with the Kata Hajime. No one can get out of it because of the sell job Punk just put on it. He just made that move as lethal as any move in the business by what he did, albeit off camera. Now listen, people are gonna say, oh, well, Punk is being hokey with Dan Housen. Some people will be critical of that. It's, no one's, listen, the few thousand people that watched the YouTube video, the mass audience didn't see Punk being hokey and and and, and falling under the spell of Dan Housen, whatever. It's, you know, some things are fun and not everybody needs to be critical of everything. So MJF comes out, home sweet home, on Long Island, he's mucking it up with the fans, you had a couple people, celebrities sitting uh, ringside, you had Casey Jost and uh, Brian Quinn from the Impractical Jokers, and he goes over to them, and he's, he's, he's with the crowd, he's, he leans back into the crowd, and they're like touching him and everything, and it's just like, and it made me think, it's like, this is what MJF is going to look like when that turn comes. 
because we, we got a little taste of Punk as a heel. Now we're getting a taste of what MJF will one day be as a babyface. And look, it's coming, okay? I don't know if it's gonna, not in the immediate future, but at some point, MJF will be a babyface. And, and if you say no, well, I'll give you this. We talk about Piper. And Piper eventually did that, okay? So everyone has, not everyone, but majority of guys will turn at some point. And, and look, we got a sneak preview of what he looks like as a babyface, and, and I liked it. I think it was good. Now, I initially questioned this whole, and I still question it to a degree, because you have this push of Wardlow, and this major push, and the pay-per-view upcoming, double or nothing, and we know we're going to get there a one-on-one match, finally. And it makes me think, well, you do the hometown thing here. Now, if I were Tony Khan, I know they booked these shows way in advance in terms of location, but I'm thinking, and I, and I, I believe Tony Khan does book this far in advance, I personally wouldn't have booked this location because I'm taking some steam off Wardlow for this one night. Now, granted, they still have a couple weeks pre-pay-per-view to rebuild the Wardlow push and the fan cheering versus the MJF booing that he's going to get at every other location. So I was, I, I'm, I'm somewhat critical of it, but I, I'm okay with it because it's not Brett in Canada. That's a different animal. When Brett was in Canada, the hatred for Shawn Michaels was on another level because of what people thought of Shawn Michaels. They booed Wardlow here just to boo Wardlow. There was no reason to boo Wardlow other than MJF is from Long Island. So I like it and then I'm critical of it. So a little of it bothered me. But at the same time, the segment was was really well done, just in terms of the way they laid it out. So we, MJF announced, tells Wardlow, by the way, he's Wardlow's in cuffs. He's sitting there with the table, ready to sign the contract. And then MJF lets him know there's going to be stipulations. And the first stipulation is that Wardlow has to take 10 lashes from him, I believe, next this coming Wednesday on Dynamite. I, I think that's when it's going to be. And... But, oh, I missed a part. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I forgot to, to, to give it to you the way it, the way it happened on TV because on camera it was well done from this standpoint. Before MJF says how many lashes, Sean Spears, who is present, he, he gets the fingers moving and then he puts the two, the two hands up and the crowd goes, 10 lashes, which is perfect because obviously the former Ty Dillinger from NXT, he got to play that role for a moment, which was a nice throwback to the character. And um, so then we learn that Wardlow has to face Spears in a cage match. So that's another stipulation. And the guest referee, MJF. And this was also a funny exchange. So after he announces a cage match with Spears and him as the uh, guest referee, Wardlow starts laughing. To which MJF brilliantly replies, I don't know why you're laughing. You're 0-2 in a cage, piggy. That was funny. That was funny. So, again, like I said, I, I don't love it, but but we get to see that sneak preview of MJF as a, as a baby face, which will happen at some point. So then um, MJF actually allowed Wardlow to come out of the cuffs to sign the contract because Wardlow claimed he couldn't do it with the with the inability with the cuffs on. So he signs the contract, and then as they go to put it, the cuffs back on, he just obliterates everybody, takes out about 10 security, and then um, smart Mark Sterling, who was there, 
of course, took the power bomb from Wardlow, and that, that, that was the thing. In that moment, here's why it bothered me. In that moment, the crowd would normally pop for Wardlow's power bomb and go crazy, but they didn't give it to him because of MJF. So it is where Wardlow lost a little bit of steam. However, like I said, he'll recapture that over the next two weeks before the pay-per-view, I think. So next up, we get the uh, Jericho Appreciation Society victory speech. A lot of a lot of this is crap. I'll be honest. A lot of this is just uh, so I know they're going hokey to, to, to do the sports entertainment part. So I get that aspect of it. They're like, OK, well, we're going to mock sports entertainment. But at the same time, we're going to do a little of it. So it's like, all right, fine. So as they're doing the speech, Jericho's talking, has his guys on there. I think one of the, uh, uh, I should remember his name, one of the guys from NXT, was it Parker or the other guy, he makes again that comment about the uh, AEW galaxy versus the universe, which is funny. So now all of a sudden, as Jericho's talking about putting out Kingston, we hear Moxley's music play. And immediately the announcers reference that Moxley and Kingston are best friends. So Moxley comes to the ring and then Jericho still makes the claim, well, there's five of us and only one of you. To which Brian Danielson's music hits. So now he's in the ring along with Regal. So it's five on three. And then he makes the comment, well, it's still only five on three. And then there's a pause and then they shoot the camera and now you can see behind Jericho Kingston Santana and Ortiz and then they hit the ring as a big brawl and that was pretty cool at that moment and then um, the segment ended with Jericho being grabbed by Regal and then Regal with his vintage left hand if you remember the old Steven Regal left hand back in the WCW days just clocked Jericho so that was that was fun but I'm sure people have talked about this i don't know i don't listen to a lot of shows i I barely listen to anything and um my my thinking is this and i know we're really close to this pay-per-view so they would have to make that announcement this coming wednesday but i think we could be leaning towards another blood and guts and if that's already the plan if it's already in the internet well i apologize because i don't go crazy reading the internet so if you already know that blood and guts is going to happen at this double or nothing show, then OK. But that's what I think they're they're going to go with here. And that will be cool. That that should be fun if they do a blood and guts with the, with these two factions. So. Uh, in the main event, we get Jeff Hardy and Darby Allen. And of course, we get the whole, this is a dream match. We get the dream just because Darby's patterned a lot of his career off of Jeff Hardy with the suicide dives and everything else he does. And this match was in the Owen Hart tournament. So whoever wins, of course, advances. And this was anything but a wrestling match. This was so much outside the ring, more than in. And it was just, it ended up just being, ugh. It's just like, we're going to do everything. A couple cool spots. I'm not going to deny that. But so Jeff Hardy wins. And my thought is this. Now, I know a lot has changed since Tony Khan has been able to get the Punks and the Danielsons and some of the other guys that have come over, the more reputable people. Now, I remember early on, he was pushing the, the, the Darby Allens and the Orange Cassidys. So to your fan base, you're now saying everyone that comes over we're going to put them in a higher position than the guys we were pushing 
because we didn't really believe in those guys because we didn't have the real stars. And now that we have the stars, well then those guys are gonna just become underneath or mid-carders. So my thought process is this. Now I get Jeff Hardy's an all-time great, but think about in what capacity WWE was last using him in. He wasn't really doing much before leaving and now AEW brings him in and he's immediately in this tournament and then he beats your former TNT champion. I think the better finish would have been the upset to have Darby win. Because what is is Hardy really changing any numbers here? Now the ratings went back up a little bit this week. They, they had taken a little dive, but not not much. Listen, against the NBA playoffs, I get it. They're in the 800 still, 100,000 I mean. But I just don't like that in terms of your long-term future booking for Darby Allen. Now, can everybody get their credibility back over time and and have that equity with the fans where fans are going to cheer them again and no matter what happens? I'm sure Darby has those set of diehard fans that are going to cheer him no matter what. But then there's that other fan base. I'm like, you keep beating this guy. How many times has Darby Allen lost? Aside from the coffin match where he beat Andrade, What's his record this year? Like he's losing a lot more than he's winning. And that, uh, and then we talk about that in WWE, which we're not going to talk about at all this week. But th- when they beat guys, we talk about 50-50 booking. And, but that's the thing. If you're going to push a guy and want him to stay in the fans' eyes as a main eventer versus just a lower mid-carder, you can't 50-50 book him. Or in this case with Darby, he's under... Like, what's his percentage of winning this year? So then fans are going to be like, well, why, why should I care about this guy? You're beating him all the time. And that's what happens in WWE. People care less about everybody because they're always getting beat. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the future of Darby Allen holds here in this company. But um, although he did just beat Swerve Strickland, to be fair, on Rampage. So he, he has another win besides Andrade. But overall, he's lost a lot more high-profile matches, especially on pay-per-view. So, that's that. I don't have anything else. Oh, yeah, I do. I'm sorry, I do. I apologize. One last final thing on wrestling. Uh, Last night, New Japan Pro Wrestling entered the States, and that's their plan. They're going to do some shows periodically in the States. Obviously, we have the big joint pay-per-view with AEW coming up in June. But first, they did what they called Capital Collision last night from D.C., now, I happened to catch a live feed late in the evening, and I don't know what time the show started, but I see there's a four-way going on, and I didn't know this was the main event because it was only 9.45, and then the show ends at 10. I'm like, that's it? Because New Japan usually puts on three to four-hour events. Now, unless your show started at 6.37, then that makes sense. I am going to go back and watch the entire show, but one thing stood out to me. This is a, a pretty good-sized building. I don't know exactly which building they were in in D.C., but I'm looking up and I see like in the next level, the second tier sections, and they're all empty. And I'm like, what? Because if you think about, remember, New Japan and Ring of Honor sold out Madison Square Garden. They also came here in the States and they did a a couple shows. I remember one in Texas that drew really well for the Grand Prix. I think they had like close to 10,000 for that show, although they did underdraw versus the MSG show. But they've had some success here in the stage drawing. But for this show, I'm like, what happened to the fans? 
especially considering they had Moxley booked. I know Kingston worked earlier, which I'll watch uh, later on. But if you get Moxley, and then later on, <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll send a shout out now to Corey Richmond, uh, formerly of the Workshoot Wrestling Podcast, which is on hiatus. It, it may come back at some point. I don't know. But he, he sent me a screen grab of the amount of seats that were made available for the show, which was only 2,150. And I went, what? You, you brought Moxley on this show. You have Kingston on this show. It's in D.C. Why couldn't they have a bigger uh, capacity and, and drawn more fans? I don't understand. Like, I, I don't know how they would think that. So that was odd to me. So based off of the, the capacity that they drew like 1900, maybe. So there weren't that many empty seats based on capacity. But when you look around the building, you know, that building can apparently hold maybe eight or more in terms of thousands of people. So it just was a bad visual on TV when you see all those sections of just empty seats. And um, what was it? In the main event, it was a four-way. I don't know what the stipulation was, or was it, oh no 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 I, I do know now. It was uh, it was for the uh, IWGP United States title. I don't remember who the champ was going in, but it was Juice Robinson who recently turned heel and joined Bullet Club against Osprey, Moxley, and Tanahashi, and the finish was uh, Juice Robinson pinning Osprey. So. I, I don't get Juice Robinson as a heel. I don't know. I mean, it does very little for me. I'm not going to say that's the reason they didn't draw. But obviously, the leader is still Jay White. So I imagine there'll be dissension between the two at some point. But I don't know. New Japan has lost a lot of steam recently. In a lot of people's eyes, their booking has taken a hit. They're doing a lot more American matches, if you will. Like the four-way, something they rarely do ever. But they did it here. So I don't know. Maybe maybe over time, New Japan will will get back to where it was. So uh, that wraps up another edition of Morton's Law podcast. Uh, check me out on Twitter, Morton's underscore Law. I still troll when I can. When when there's an opportunity to troll, I will troll. I do respect certain people. <laughs> there is there is a level of tact in which I will display occasionally. But uh, I even comment on YouTube videos also. If you're ever on YouTube and there's some video regarding crime or something pertaining to the chaos that's going on in this country right now, you'll see a comment here by me just taking a dump on anything. So, uh, yeah, I'll be back soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. And God bless gay sex.